Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys today. We're going to jump into our Sunday school class. Let's pray, and we will look at Second uh, and Third John together this morning. Lord, thank you for the chance to be together, to open your word, and to, to read it, and to seek to understand. I pray that as uh, we spend some time in, in John's epistles this morning, that you would give us a clear understanding, and that we would be equipped to read and believe and apply your word. I pray for your help now in Christ's name. Amen. So, what if I told you that God wanted you to discriminate, to be discriminating? Some of you are smiling, just seeing if you're awake this morning. It sounds kind of negative, doesn't it? To be discriminating, to discriminate. To our ears, those words might sound harsh and negative, but the reality is that not all people are to be welcomed or affirmed or received. Not all ideas are to be honored or to be given respect. So this week and next week, we're going to take some time to look at the clear teaching of the New Testament about being discriminate. Um, Second and Third John, and then also the book of Jude, addresses this issue. So Second and Third John, what we're looking at today, are two of the shortest books in the New Testament. They both clock in at a little under 300 words uh, in the Greek language. So that puts them at pretty much the shortest two in the New Testament. And these two books are also very personal. They're not written to a region. They're not written to a church or a family of churches like many of the other books. They're written to individuals. Uh, The author, obviously, is the Apostle John. So not John the Baptist, but this is John, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, who was one of the 12 disciples. And he was part of Jesus's inner circle. Uh, Peter, James, and John were sort of the the three that Jesus spent most time with and that he was closest to. They were with him on certain occasions when none of the other disciples were. So John was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, for example. He saw the the display of Christ's glory um, when the veil was pulled back for a few moments and the radiance of the glory of Christ in the fullness of his deity was on display. John was there. And he saw that. And it left a big imprint on him. When you read John's writings, you can tell he never got over that. He always refers back to what we have seen and the light of Christ, the glory of Christ. And John was also there at the cross. He was the only disciple that was there at the foot of the cross. And you see Jesus speaking to this man, to John, the beloved disciple, um, asking John to take care of his mother Mary. Um, This man, John, as we noted last week, was the author of the Gospel of John which is different than Matthew and Mark and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as synoptic gospels, and they have a little different flavor. John's gospel takes a different approach. It's, it's, it's not that the other ones aren't theological, but John's gospel is a theological treatise, and it was likely written much later than the other gospels. It makes a unique contribution there. And obviously, he also wrote the epistle of 1 John. He wrote these two letters, and then he finally wrote the book of Revelation. So he is an author of a good chunk of the New Testament. And as time marched on, John was the last apostle standing. All the rest were martyred at some point. And he alone was left. And church history tells us he lived to be a very old man. It's interesting, he introduces himself in both of these letters as the elder. He doesn't refer to himself by his name, just like he doesn't refer to himself by name in the Gospel of John. He always talks about the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's fairly modest and doesn't, you know, stick himself in there. 
Uh, And here he refers to himself in both of these letters as the elder. And I don't think he's referring to himself as elder in terms of pastor. This isn't like a ministry position. I think he's just describing himself as, you know, the old guy, John, that's me. Um, He was an old man and a beloved man and an influential church leader. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved, known as the apostle of love, and was the last apostle standing. And he writes to the church um, with the heart of a pastor. We're really not sure about the date of either of these letters, either 2nd or 3rd John, but it was likely towards the end of the first century. Um, John ministered uh, in the region and around the region of Ephesus, and he probably wrote these letters after 1st John because he refers in these letters to, to teaching, that he, he's assuming they know the content of this teaching. And he even refers to something that has been written in verse 9 of 3rd John. So it's likely that he writes these letters after First John. Um, and the audience to whom he is writing, as we mentioned earlier, both individuals. He writes in Second John to this elect lady and her children, and then he writes in Third John to the beloved Gaius, this close personal friend of his. So like the, like the book of Philemon that Paul wrote, these are personal letters, personal letters. Now, Stephen Parkin did a great job covering 1 John last week, and if you missed that, um, I, I don't have time to go and recap the whole book, but that's really foundational to understanding 2 and 3 John, because in 1 John, uh, the Apostle John lays out his theology. He lays out the content, the substance of his concern for the church. He has a pastoral concern for them, and this thematic emphasis that we find in 1 John, John's theology, John's concern, his teaching that theme sort of carries through 2nd and 3rd John as well. And if we had time, it would have been great to sort of tack these on to 1st John last week because it, it flows so perfectly. Uh, but for time's sake, we need to give them their own, their own morning uh, today. So John's emphasis, as we saw last week, in his first epistle was both pastoral and polemical, meaning that he wrote out of a concern for his people as a pastor. He wanted to encourage them, to assure them in their faith, to ground them in the essentials of the faith. But he was also being polemical. He's also arguing against something. He's addressing and refuting false teaching in First John, a false teaching that was threatening the spiritual health and the joy of the people that he loved. And so he calls out error and exposes it. And in that letter, as as Stephen showed us, John lays out some tests, tests both for evaluating ourselves and tests for evaluating the character and and the the truthfulness of these upstart teachers who were pushing false doctrine. So there's a doctrinal test and there's a moral test. And we can evaluate ourselves by these tests, but also evaluate uh, the beliefs and behavior and the claims of suspected false teachers. And again, I would commend Stephen's teaching to you from last week to sort of explain all of that. So in 1 John, he had laid out this theology, and he had written to the church at large. But now in 2 and 3 John, these are shorter and personal in nature. And rather than laying out his theology all over again, because he's already done that, John is writing in both of these books to give a simple reminder of the fundamentals of the faith. He reminds them of things he's already talked about, things like love and obedience and truth and the deity of Christ. And he writes Second and Third John to specifically help them apply these truths, given the situations that they were facing. Um, you know, often we ask, why is this book in the Bible? What would we be missing if we didn't have this? 
Well, 2nd and 3rd John don't make any new theological contributions, but they help us to apply the truth, the doctrinal truth that he's already laid out, both in his gospel and in 1st John. And that's important because if we understand doctrine, we understand theology, but we don't know how to apply it rightly, then we're only halfway there. And so John, as a wise pastor, gives us some practical ways to apply the truths that he's already explained. Um, And that's really helpful and even necessary for us. So what are the themes of these books? Well, the themes of these two letters are related, but they're different and and complementary, I think. In 2 John, here's what we find. 2 John is very simply an exhortation to not show hospitality to false teachers. That's a, a simple explanation of the theme. It's an exhortation to not show hospitality to false teachers. And in doing so, he's tying together the themes that he's talked about so much in 1 John. Themes of love, you know, hospitality, welcoming people in, that's important. But also themes of truth and the dangers of false teaching. So he's helping us to apply these things rightly. <clears throat> so there's a warning in 2 John. An instruction to draw lines and even withdraw from certain people. His point is that although we are to walk in love... There is a limit, practically speaking, to the unity we can enjoy in the church. And the limits are drawn by truth. So there must be discernment in our love. And we must separate from those who would corrupt the gospel and promote a false and damning doctrine. So that's 2 John. It's an exhortation to not show hospitality to false teachers. And then 3 John is related, but again, different. 3 John is an exhortation to show hospitality to faithful teachers. So you see how they're related, but a little bit different. In 3 John, we see that that faithful ministers of the gospel are to be welcomed and supported and received in love. In fact, in 3 John, he will condemn those who refuse to welcome such men, who refuse to support them. Um, and, and don't support those who are preaching this true gospel. And in 3 John, he's going to call out by name this domineering church leader, a man who is rejecting John's authority and turning a cold shoulder to approved ministers of the gospel. So as I was studying through this um, this week, I was just kind of thinking to myself, I mean, isn't God so wise to give us both books? Give us both encouragements and both warnings. Um, Because when it comes to love and unity and hospitality, there's a right impulse to open our arms to those who claim Christ. And, And in fact, John had insisted this is part of what shows you're a true believer, that you have love for the brothers. But at the same time, there's the necessity to uphold and protect and heed and defend the truth. And we tend to typically fall into one of two ditches. We either open our arms to everyone and we have no discernment, no discrimination, or we actually start drawing lines we shouldn't draw and refusing to support and cooperate with and welcome and honor and receive people that we should because they're faithful ministers of the gospel. So we sort of have two different guardrails here to keep us um, in, in what is biblically right and true. At times, there's a necessity to defend the truth, but we are also called to love the brothers and to show hospitality to them. So John had called out false teachers and exposed their false teaching in his first epistle. Now he knows the challenge in terms of application is to have both the courage and the discernment to know how and when to draw those lines. And so that's why he writes these two letters. John's letters keep us from being indiscriminate 
They help keep us from being so open-hearted and open-minded that we allow serious errors into the church. But he's also wary of those who would cut off everyone, those who would refuse to show any spirit of unity or cooperation with those outside of their immediate circle. So John helps keep us from two things. He keeps us from doctrinal paranoia, those who would draw lines that don't need to be drawn, but he also keeps us from disunity. Um, he, he encourages us to open, open our arms and welcome people in. So let's sort of look at the outline and overview of both of these books. We'll start with Second John. I've sort of given you the high-level view. We'll jump into the text now. Um, the, the first section in this book, sort of section number one, is his greeting in verses one through three. And this is the basis for Christian hospitality. He says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. This is his greeting to the elect lady, and it shows the basis for Christian hospitality. So who is this elect lady and her children? Um, this is actually a point of disagreement between some scholars. Some interpret this as being descriptive of a church. You know, this lady is the church and the children are her members. Um, but I think it's probably better to take it in the simple sense that John is writing to an individual, likely someone who had influence. Perhaps she would host a church in her house because she's the one making decisions here about hospitality, about who to welcome in. And so John writes to her. It's likely that she was hosting a church congregation in her home. And John affirms his love for her specifically in the truth. So again, we see John's favorite themes of love and truth tied together here. This word truth is repeated five times in this short little book. John may speak often of love, but this love, as we see, is rooted in and guarded in the truth. It's not an indiscriminate love, and it's not love for love's sake. It's love in the truth. He says that this lady is someone he loves in the truth, and it's not unique to just their relationship. He says this is the case for all who know the truth because the truth abides in us. So he ties together uh, love and truth here, and although he will soon express his concern about error just in a, a few verses later, I love what John does here in this greeting because he makes an amazing statement of confidence in verses 2 and 3. And this is good for us. Anytime we talk about error, anytime we talk about the danger of false teaching, and it's serious and there is a lot at stake, we don't want to give in to hand-wringing and paranoia and thinking the sky is falling and becoming worried that somehow Jesus and his gospel are going to lose. I love what he says in verse 2, because of the truth that abides in us, and look at this, will be with us forever. So John has concerns, but he's also very confident. This truth will be with us forever. He says in verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. So if we're going to address error and be careful and be on guard, that's important, but we never do that in a sense, that loses our confidence. We can be confident in the truth, confident in Christ. So John's not paranoid. He's not wringing his hands. Remember, this is the same man who wrote in 1 John, uh, or who wrote rather in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John's a confident man. 
He's serious about error. He's concerned, but he's confident. He wrote in John 8, 32, he's writing down the words of Jesus himself. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In 1 John 4, verse 4, he says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So even though we are called to be discriminating and cautious, we're confident in Christ. We're confident in the truth. What a way to open this letter. I love you in the truth, and I have great confidence in the truth. And this is the basis, John says, for fellowship and hospitality and Christian unity. It's love for those who walk in truth, confidence in that truth. The second section in this little letter, in verses 4 through 6, is an exhortation to hospitality. It says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. John makes a reference here to what has already been commanded. This, he, he brings up this idea of what's been commanded four times. So what's he referring to? If you remember last week in 1 John, Stephen explained this. The commandment to love is not a new thing. It starts in the Old Testament. It's really the summary of the second half of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. What does it look like, look like to love your neighbor? That's the second half of the Ten Commandments. Jesus said that the whole law is summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor. Um, so that's not a new commandment, it's an old commandment, but Jesus did breathe new life into that commandment when he affirmed it and gave special weight to it in the New Testament. In John chapter 13, 34, again, same author recording the teaching of Jesus, he had written there, a new commandment I give to you, this is Jesus speaking, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John remembered that. It was vivid in his memory, his recollection. And apparently that had made a really significant impact on him because he always goes back to that whenever he gets a chance to teach or write. He had highlighted this in his first epistle, 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So John gives an exhortation to this lady to keep loving. But John ties together here love and obedience. And he says, this is love in verse 6. This is the commandment that we should walk in it. We walk according to his commandments. He says, listen, if you love God and you love others, that's not just going to be something you claim with your mouth. That'll be something that's born out in a life of obedience. So keep at it. Keep at it. You've heard this before. I just want to remind you again. He doesn't have to re-explain it. He just puts her in remembrance of what's already been taught, what's already been written, and exhorts her uh, to, to demonstrate love to others. But then he gives, in verses 7 through 11, this is the third section of the book, a clarification regarding this hospitality, regarding the love that she is to show. Because the reality is, not all are walking in the truth, and not all truly love God. Look in verses 7 through 11. He just encouraged her, as she's heard from the beginning, to walk in it. But here's the reality. Not everybody's walking in it. Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. 
those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. John has in mind here the same people that he exposed in his first epistle. People specifically who denied the deity of Christ. And this is important because John's not telling her to refuse love and hospitality to anyone who disagrees with her about anything. He brings out specifically a serious doctrine. A doctrine upon which our very salvation rests. And that's the deity of Christ. In 1 John 2.18, he had said, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. These are people who had been part of the church. They went out from us, but they were not of us. He's saying they're not genuine in their faith. And he explains why. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. First John 2.22, he said, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So there is such a thing as heresy. Teaching that is, that is, that is errant and is so serious that it corrupts the very gospel and denies essential, fundamental beliefs of our faith. So John reminds this lady that while she is to show love and hospitality to all who walk in truth, there are limits to her hospitality because there are deceivers out there. And she, according to verse 8, is to watch out. He says, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. He wants to make sure that she's not deceived and led astray because departing from the faith and falling prey to these false teachers would mean losing her reward. He says, watch yourselves that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. He points out the importance here of abiding in the truth and remaining in the truth. This eternal reward is eternal life. And he says, listen, if you depart from the gospel, if you depart from the true teaching of who Jesus is, then all of our labors to evangelize you and to plant this church and to teach you these things, it's all a waste. Because if you depart from that, you'll receive nothing but judgment at the end. Because that will prove that you, like them, were not of us. Because you went out from us. He describes what these teachers are doing as going on ahead, which is interesting. Going on ahead. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. What's he mean by that? If you remember what Stephen taught us last week, there is this Gnostic idea of, of a higher level of spirituality, uh, of these other experiences that were outside of the gospel and, and required you to, to depart from the basic lower level Christian teachings. John says, listen, if you try to graduate from the gospel and go on ahead to some deeper, richer, truer religion, then you've actually lost everything. So don't go on ahead. It's essential that we abide in Christ. He uses this word abide. Whoever abides in the teaching, 
has Father and the Son. I think this word abide is really echoing what Jesus taught in John chapter 15. You can almost imagine John here with pen in hand as he's writing this letter, remembering that sermon that he heard Jesus give. Do you remember John chapter 15? Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches and whoever it is who, what? Abides in me bears much fruit. We don't have time to go through that whole section. It's rich and it's deep. But John came away understanding that it is important to abide in Christ, to remain in him, to be dependent on him because he is our source of life. And it's in being connected to Christ that we can thrive and bear fruit. So John brings that up again here. Abide in the teaching. Abide in Christ. Don't move on ahead to something else and leave Jesus behind. Whoever abides in him will bear fruit and will make it to the end and will be found in Christ on the last day and therefore will receive the reward and not be put to shame and be empty-handed. So John says, watch out for those who would try to convince you to not abide in the truth and to leave Christ behind. But in addition, John says, not just to watch yourself, not just watch out that you don't get sucked into this. He says, don't support or assist these people in any way. Do not welcome them. Do not fellowship with them. Do not recognize them and give them any credibility. He says in verse 10, if anyone comes to you, And does not bring this teaching that if you have Christ, you have the Father and that that's enough. Whoever doesn't bring that, it says, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. In those days, to welcome someone into your house was an endorsement. Uh, Hospitality in in Middle Eastern culture was, was a really important part of social relationships, and, and for her, if she's hosting a church in her house, to, to receive such a person into her home and to greet them, to publicly recognize them, would have been an endorsement. And it would have been giving them a platform. And from that platform, they would have deceived people and led them away from Christ. Um, I think there's different ways that this can be applied today. Um, there's only certain people that we will have come and speak in this church Um, There's only certain uh, people we will publicly endorse and promote their ministries. And we we need to be careful about that. Uh, We need to be careful that they are not uh, denying the gospel and undermining the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished. Why is it so important not to platform such people, not to endorse them, not to support them and help them in any way? You see, these these traveling um, false teachers, they needed a place to stay. So by her welcoming them in, them in and feeding them and hosting them, she would have been supporting their ministry, contributing to what they were doing. He says this in verse 11, whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. He says, listen, this guy might be robbing the bank, but don't you be the getaway driver. You can't be an accomplice to these theological crimes that they're committing. Don't aid and abet false teachers. It's important. These people are the antichrists that are now in the world. They're opposing Jesus. So if you are for Jesus, you can't help them. You have to pick your side. And so he makes this very clear. You don't want to help facilitate their wicked works, their evil deeds. So don't do it. Don't do it. So that's his his warning, his exhortation. And then finally he gives in his conclusion, verses 12 through 13, in anticipation of the right kind of hospitality. So don't welcome those guys. Don't greet them. Uh, don't, don't, don't welcome them into your home. But then in verse 12 through 13, he says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. There's a lot of wisdom there. 
If you can have a face-to-face conversation, don't send an email, right? John knew that. He says, instead, I hope to come to you and talk face-to-face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. John concludes this letter by simply saying he's looking forward to being with them again. He's looking forward to talking face-to-face, and he'd rather do that than write another epistle like 1 John. He's already laid some of those things out. There's more he wants to talk about with her, um, but he'll do that when he sees her face-to-face. And he's looking forward to enjoying her hospitality, to receiving her support, and, and experiencing true fellowship in the church because he abides in the truth, and so do they. And that means that they can look forward to genuine unity and fellowship and hospitality. So that's Second John. It's a warning not to show hospitality, not to support or endorse false teachers who deny Christ and undermine the gospel. So that's Second John. Third John, we can move over there, flip the page, is similar. As we mentioned earlier, Third John is an exhortation to show the right kind of hospitality. And we find the greeting is verses 1 through 4. If you're, t- if you're breaking this down into an outline, 1 through 4 is his greeting. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This greeting is really an affirmation, an affirmation of who Gaius is and an affirmation of what he's been doing. He's doing great. And so John's not writing to to necessarily correct a problem with Gaius. Um, He's doing a great job, and John's very encouraged to hear the report about him. And John loves this man in the truth. Again, uh, he has a personal affection for this brother. This letter is addressed to this man named Gaius. We don't really know who Gaius is. Um, Gaius was a popular name. It was kind of like a John Smith of the day, you know. And if you read the New Testament, we find several different people named Gaius, but we don't have any way of knowing exactly who this man is. And as is typical, John affirms his care for this brother. And I think it's interesting. He says, I wish you were as healthy physically as you are spiritually. Did you pick up on that? He says, I pray that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. Uh, This reminds me of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So you see, it's it's interesting here, a a warm wish for blessing, but also an affirmation. Like, like you are really healthy and strong in a spiritual sense, and I I hope that you get feeling better, and that your, your body would match your soul in terms of its strength and vigor and health. But again, if you notice in these four verses, John refers to um, something four times. And again, it's the truth. It's the truth. He loves this man in the truth, verse 1. Rejoiced in the report about the truth, verse 3. And just to make sure we know what he gets most excited about, he says he has no greater joy than to hear that his children, speaking of his spiritual children, those he, he has a fatherly relationship to, he has no greater joy than to know that those children are walking in the truth. So again, this is typical John, and that's why even though we don't have his name at the beginning, it's very clear who's writing this, because it's truth and love, truth and love, walking in truth, walking in love. These themes are very, very prominent again in this book. So after this greeting where he gives a word of affirmation, he gives a word of commendation in verses 5 through 8 and and commends him for how he's living. 
In verse 5, he says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Apparently, there were some people who had come to where Gaius was, and Gaius had related to uh, these brothers in a way that was faithful, in a way that pleased God. He says that these strangers, verse 6, testify to your love before the church. These guys had come back and told John about how great a job Gaius was doing, how he was faithful to the truth, faithful to show love and hospitality. He says, uh, halfway through verse 6, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. He says, keep it up. Keep supporting these guys. Why? Why should Gaius support them? Why should he um, relate to them this way? Verse 7, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. These are men who had gone out for the sake of the name. It's a very stark contrast here between them and the false teachers. The false teachers are antichrists against Christ. These men had gone out for the sake of the name, the name of Christ, the name of Jesus. So they were ones who, rather than being refused and rejected, these are men that we should support. These men were fully devoted to proclaiming the true gospel and to building and strengthening the church. And John says we should support people like this because in doing so, we become fellow workers for the truth. So this is a worthy investment of our love and our affection and our support and our our resources even. If the gospel is true, then it ought to be preached. It ought to be spread. And that means its ministers ought to be supported. We ought to invest in that. Not all of us are going to be missionaries or pastors or evangelists or church planters, but all of us play a part in the mission. All of us have a responsibility to see that the truth gets out. And so John tells Gaius, I'm so thankful that you are loving these brothers and that you are supporting them. Keep it up. Send them on their way because you're a fellow worker in the truth if you do. But here's the problem. Not everybody's excited about supporting these brothers, these faithful brothers who had gone out for the sake of the name. He gives him in verse 9 through 11 a word of condemnation. Condemnation not for Gaius, but for someone else in the church named Diotrephes. He calls this guy out by name. Verse 9, he says, I have written something to the church, probably referring to 1 John, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. John calls this guy out by name, Diotrephes. And the first warning sign, the first flag with this guy, is that he rejected John's authority. And John points that out. Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. Leaders in the church who aren't apostles, our authority comes from appealing to Scripture, what God has said. And whatever God has said, we can say authoritatively. But John didn't need to cite chapter and verse as a leader in the church because what he was writing was chapter and verse. He's an apostle. He'd been commissioned with special authority from Christ. 
He was one of the 12. He was part of that inner circle of Jesus. And Jesus had commissioned him and endorsed his authority in the church. So for Diotrephes to reject John, this isn't just a squabble between two big personalities. This is actually a leader in the church, Diotrephes, rejecting God's authority. It would be like someone today rejecting the authority of Scripture because Diotrephes was rejecting Scripture. First John, this letter, even though it was fresh off the, the press, so to speak, the ink might have been still drying, but it was Scripture. It was the Word of God. Rejecting John was rejecting God's Word. A key warning sign with any false, unhealthy leaders in the church is that they reject the authority of the Word. Diotrephes did not acknowledge John's authority, what he had written. But there's a second warning sign about this guy. And it's not simply that he had a wrong view of John's writings. There's a deeper character issue. He says Diotrephes likes to put himself first. Now it becomes clear why he was rejecting John. Because Diotrephes had plans to be the big man on campus. He was a self-promoter. And he didn't want John to get all the shine. He was proud, and so he was rejecting what John had written and even smearing John verbally. Look in verse 10. He was slandering, this, uh, slandering the apostle John. John says, if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. So his pride, his desire to put himself first, led him not only to dismiss John's writings, but to slander John's character. And in addition now, he had also rejected these traveling ministers of the true gospel, these faithful brothers who had gone out for the sake of the name. And, and John is, is frustrated and grieved over the fact that not only is Diotrephes you know, rejecting these men, but he's also making sure nobody else in the church supports them. He's trying to make sure nobody else can help them. And if people try to, to help these traveling ministers, Diotrephes is trying to kick them out of the church. I think it's interesting here that John doesn't call Diotrephes out as a heretic. Did you notice that? And John's more than happy to call people heretics when they're heretics. He'll call someone an antichrist if they are. He'll explain where they're wrong doctrinally. But he doesn't point out anything technically wrong with Diotrephes' doctrine. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Um, you can be, what this shows us is that you can be orthodox in doctrine, but still be an enemy of the truth in your character, and in the things that you're doing publicly in terms of what's going on in the church. So there's a word of condemnation here. John says, listen, when I show up, I'm going to deal with that. I'll take care of that issue when I get there. Um, but he's telling Gaius, he's saying, listen, I know this is going on. Um, I, I've heard that Diotrephes is rejecting my authority. He likes to put himself first. This is his character. This is who he is. And that's really the problem is this man's character, even more so than his doctrine. So John's going to deal with that when he gets there. But in the meanwhile, he wants to make sure that Gaius learns a simple lesson from this. The simple lesson is this in verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, but whoever does evil has not seen God. He's saying, listen, Diotrephes might have right doctrine, but based on what he's doing, he is showing that he doesn't know God. Even an unbeliever can read all the right books and put together the right theology in an intellectual sense. But character always demonstrates itself. John shows us that in 1 John, doesn't he? Whoever loves the brothers shows that he loves God. This man doesn't love the brothers. So he's showing us who he really is. And he tells Gaius, don't imitate evil. Instead, imitate good. 
And then he gives Gaius a great example of what doing good looks like. He mentions another man, Demetrius, in verse 12. Demetrius, unlike Diotrephes, has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. Demetrius was approved by the congregation. He had a good public testimony with the brothers. He was faithful to the truth. He met the doctrinal test. And he also has John's personal endorsement. And such men are clearly godly. They're godly. They are from God, to use the language of verse 11. Whoever does good is from God. Diotrephes had proved he was not from God because of his evil works. And John's simple word uh, to Gaius is to mark such men and choose wisely whose influence you're going to allow in your life. Choose wisely whose example you're going to follow. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. The conclusion, verses 13 through 15 again, a personal greeting, a desire to see them, a wishing of blessing. It says, I had much to write to you. John has a lot more he could say, but I'd rather not write with pen and ink. This is very similar to 2 John. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. He's looking forward to fellowship, unity, to talking about the truth and demonstrating love to each other. He says, peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. I think it's interesting here even how he ends the book. You know, we often refer to uh, those in the church, our fellow believers, as brothers and sisters. I think that's probably the most common description in the New Testament of, of how we relate to each other, and that's good. Uh, we are family, but it's interesting here he says, the friends greet you. Greet the friends. John aptly here captures the spirit of love and support and cooperation that ought to be shared among those who abide in the truth. And that's his personal letter to Gaius. So one letter to the elect lady, one letter to Gaius. One letter saying, make sure you don't support or show hospitality to false teachers. And another letter saying, make sure you show support and hospitality to faithful teachers. So we have both sort of balancing us out to make sure we stay walking in the truth, demonstrating biblical love. We're about out of time, but one um, clarification, two clarifications I want to make as we think about applying these things. One is that John is not talking here about unbelievers who are openly unbelievers. He's talking specifically about how we relate to those who profess to know Christ and are professing to speak for Christ. These are teachers. These are leaders. Those who stand and are attempting to shepherd the church. So this isn't referring to your unsaved neighbor saying, don't show hospitality to them. Don't have them over for dinner. No, have your lost neighbor over for burgers and grill and talk about the gospel with them. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about those who stand and are, pro- and are promoting in the church either false teaching or true teaching. So, so keep in mind that that's what John is talking about. And then secondly, and I've alluded to this already, he's not saying that we should shun and separate from anyone who disagrees with us about anything. John is always bringing up serious doctrines things that qualify as heresy, things that that undermine and actually deny the gospel and the deity of Christ. So friends, very simply put, we need to be able to discern between what are primary doctrines and secondary doctrines and maybe even tertiary doctrines because not all truths are worth separating over, but some truths we literally should die for. 
And we need to be able to discern the difference. If that's a new concept for you, and if you're curious about what things fall into those categories, I would just refer you back to our church's statement of faith because we've broken our statement of faith into two sections, essentials of the faith and then distinctives, things that we are convinced of and that we will teach in this church. That's intended not just to tell people outside the church what we believe. We've put that doctrinal statement together in part to help people in the church have a helpful tool to, di- to discern and determine which categories, which doctrines fall in which categories. So I would refer you to that document just as a resource and a help. And I trust and hope that that will help you to discern where we need to draw lines and at what level we can cooperate with people and at what level we need to sort of pull away and keep a safe distance. So I trust that Second, Third John is helpful and encouraging to you. I know it has been for me. Let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord, thanks for your word. Thank you for um, the wise pastoral application that we find in Second and Third John. I pray that you would help this church, help each of us to be discerning, that there would be limits to our unity and our fellowship that are drawn by the truth of your word. But Lord, within the bounds of truth, I pray that you would make us a people who are eager to support and affirm and welcome uh, and show love to those Um, who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you would make this church a warm-hearted, hospitable church that is committed also to the truth. Amen.